it's a platform that connects skilled volunteers essentially with uh, communities. And the first community we're focusing on is, is schools. So if you've got some uh, IT skills, maybe you've got some programming skills, science, whatever your skills are, there's probably a school somewhere that needs your help. It could be in the classroom, it could be teaching that subject. Like just having, imagine having somebody who worked from industry talk to the kids about you know, how you would, what's the relevance of this part of you know algebra or science or you know whatever it is that they're doing to connect it to a real person in a real industry. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week, I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Well, you might know him as the founder of Tech Success Vend, or for his fancy moustache now gone, or his determination to do one scary thing every year. You probably don't know that Vaughan Ferguson, formerly Vaughan Rousel, last year started the Institute of Awesome, based on a rambling 100-acre section and lodge overlooking the Tasman Sea in Raglan. From here, Vaughan and his partner Zoe Timbrell were going to run school camps that combine tech with sustainability and outdoor adventure. COVID has put all that on ice for now, but one thing we know for sure, Vaughan will have a plan. And I spoke to him last week to find out what he's up to. Vaughan, welcome to this climate business. Where are you, in Raglan? Uh, no, I wish I could say I was in Raglan. I'm in my bunker, my, my billionaire bunker in Auckland. <laughs> it's not a billionaire bunker, it's just the basement of my house. Just a bunker. And um, is that where you've spent your isolation? And why, I've, I've been following you on Twitter, why were you in isolation? Well, I mean, we were all in isolation for level four. Um, and Zoe and I had an extra bonus few weeks of isolation because we came back from the US a few weeks before we, we all entered level four. So we self-isolated and we made the decision that, because we were thinking we're only self-isolating for a few weeks, mm -hmm. that we would self-isolate in, in, in Auckland. Um, where we had access to hospitals and Uber Eats and things like that. Mm. <laughs> um, but then <laughs> next thing you know, we're entering level four and, and our two weeks of isolation is now being seven. And, and you know, now we're in level three. We're still choosing to self-isolate, doing the responsible thing. Um, mm. And But here we are. And uh, so tell us about the Institute of Awesome. I, I imagine you're having to pivot because you're now not getting kids coming to the lodge. But... Um, uh, tell us about the vision for that, and uh, and then let, tell us how you've changed to uh, to cope with uh, with this new reality. Yeah, so the 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 whole Institute of Awesome thing kind of happened by accident. We um, we'd always been in love with Raglan, and we we're trying to and through our charity. So we run a charity, and we work mainly in education, trying to create new opportunities for the next generation. So using te technology, because like technology is going to shape our future. So we've been doing lots of work for five years, um, usually working with uh, you know underprivileged kids or communities that have greater need for digital access. Um, just trying to create a level playing field and create new opportunities. You know, so we've been doing that for, for five years, and and um, one of the communities that we kind of fell in love with was the Waikato and and the Raglan community. And so we the initial idea was that we wanted to set up a little a little tech hub. Like a little co-working space and get some you know interesting people to work there and run some workshops teaching kids how to, how to teach technology and things like that um, but as we started to uh, explore that idea we had this 
you know, because we were in the right place at the right time, we had this opportunity to buy this old school camp, which is like this awesome place. And it's 50 years old and it's out in Whale Bay. It's on 110 acres overlooking the ocean. Um, and it was set up as a, as a school camp by some school teachers from Huntley um, to, you know, as, as a school camp to connect kids with the natural environment. Um, but it kind of stopped being that about I don't know, 20 years ago and um, it, it became a backpackers. And then, uh, you know, long story short, the opportunity to buy the property came up and we were like, cool, let's turn it back into a school camp. Um, because uh, like for, for us, it was the, the realization one day that kids aren't going to school camps anymore. Like some are, some, you know, kids um, whose parents, you know, let's put it this way, only a very select few kids these days get to go and do the school camp experience. Which is amazing um, to hear in New Zealand, right? Because, you know, school camp is sort of part of uh, all of our upbringing, really. It's the sort of thing, like it feels like it's a, a rite of passage, right? That, that, you know, it's every kid's right, if not obligation, like they have to go do their tour of duty <laughs> in the bush in a school camp. Um, and they're amazing. Like everybody who, you know, reminisces about their experience at school camp, like, mm. It was it's 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 a very it's a, a very pivotal moment in their lives where you know, mm. they learn that they can stay away from home and that, you know they learn about the natural environment and you know they go jump off logs and kind of it's a real self discovery thing and it's mm. self discovery connecting with uh, something that we all cherish which is our natural environment you know and so the 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 uh, realization was that if kids aren't going on school camp as much you know and it's not like this rite of passage that every kid gets to do. Um, then maybe the next generations will grow up and they'll lose a little bit of that connection with the natural environment. Like they'll mm. still care about it, but maybe they yeah. just won't care as much. Um, and, and, and that would be a real loss for New Zealand because like we all pride ourselves on that, on our natural environment. Uh, and that we're, we, we see ourselves as like not, not eco warriors, but like we see ourselves as being good uh, caretakers um, of the environment. Like, you know, we, we pick up, we pick up litter. And you know, yeah. we, we like having 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 clean water, and we like been thinking too hard, and yeah. my glasses, my glasses <laughs> have exploded. Um, but you've got and, a, bit of a layer of tech, right? That you, I mean, you're you're a, you're a nerd from way back, and so you mm. you've introduced this level of uh, uh, technology integration into sustainability. How, how does that work, and and well, how did it work, and and how are you going to make it work now? Yeah, and that's how we thought we could make the the whole camp experience something different. You know, still have that connection with the environment, but add a learning experience over the top, so that kids are learning science and technology with a purpose, with a purpose of like, how would you use new skills like science and technology to solve real world problems? And, you know, how would you figure out, you know, is the water in the stream polluted? And if so, where is the pollution coming from? And how would you solve that? Or it might be, you know, how would you protect our native birds from pests? Like how would we eradicate pests? Um, you know, how would we generate electricity? Like how would we grow food? All these really interesting problems that you know, mm. these are problems that the real world problems that the world needs like how do you do that you know in a clean way using technology that preserves and enhances our natural environment and so and so that's what we get considered they come they have the camp experience absolutely they still do the orienteering and you know all the outdoors stuff and discovering themselves and and staying up late and playing spotlight and all that sort of thing but whilst they're there we give them this mission which is how would you solve a problem how would you solve this mystery 
Um, and we teach them how to program and wire and solder two bits of wire together and run science experiments and, and, and all that stuff. But we leave it open to them to figure out how they want to solve the problem. Okay. Um, and maybe they maybe they might invent this crazy new thing, which is like, right. you know, that will solve the problem for everyone. Um, because the other thing that we learned was, uh, you know, global warming is a thing and, and, and climate change is a thing. And it's kind of, for kids these days, it's their nuclear moment. Like we grew up, I don't know, we're probably about the same age. And um, like I remember being 10 and being petrified that a nuclear bomb was going to drop on my home. And I like, had absolutely no control. And I would lie awake at many, many nights having high anxiety about it. The kids, our kids, it's, it's, it's climate change is their yeah. anxiety thing. Like they feel like they have no control. It's just happening to them and their world is going to change. But what we're trying to uh, teach the kids is actually we can all do something. And if we actually all do something, we don't have, it's not on you, to, you know, on your shoulders to solve the problem, but right. there's stuff that we can all do that contri contributes yeah. to, to, to a solution. And how many of these camps had you managed to run before we hit this current situation? Uh, a few. Um, and then, uh, and then yeah, uh, we were gearing up for full launch um, this autumn. Um, and then COVID came along and kind of uh, put a pin in that for a bit. Um, and, uh, and so now we're just sort of waiting, waiting for the green light for us to reopen the camp. Right. Um, so we don't know when that is, but we're still going to go back to the same plan. Um, and in fact, we've had lots of interest from people um, over the last few weeks. Uh, because the other thing that's happened is like, everybody's been locked down, like you know, and kids have been stuck at home, and like we've never been further away from our natural environment than we have over the last five weeks. And so we've had a whole bunch of corporates and people in the tech space, um, you know, schools, uh, getting in touch with us saying, "Well, we need we need to come." to the camp more than ever now because like we just need to you know get out of the house yeah. <laughs> we just know you know we just need to reconnect with 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 the world again and, yeah and, and that yeah environment. right uh, and i'm assuming that there'll come a time when we can have mass gatherings or or small mass gatherings do you have any indication uh, i guess you have you got any, any insight into that more than anybody else about when that might happen no no, no more than anybody else um but, you know, the first level is, you know, having gatherings of less than 100 people and, you know, our camp can comfortably keep, you know, 80 people there. Um, that would be a big group for us. So, you know, we'd probably have groups of 30, 40 people. And so once we're out of, once we're down to level two, then we can start, uh, we can start doing those things again. In the meantime, I know that you're not one to sit still and I've seen you busy online with various projects. So I, I know that you're in the middle of a, a kind of a response, I think, to uh, um, imagining what a, a, a rebuilt post-COVID economy could look like. What are the areas that really interest you? Do you think that there are some investments that are better than others in terms of priorities? I mean, where would you put the emphasis in terms of this big um, investment you know, in, I don't know, shovel-ready or, um, you know, in, in projects going forward? What, what are the things that matter, do you think? Yeah, um, so I think there's going to be a great opportunity for us to do big infrastructure projects. And Rod, Rod Drury's talked about, you know, shared his ideas on, you know, with uh, hydro, you know, dams as batteries, um, selling, you know, making property available for offshore uh, investors, you know, uh, rich people to come and build mansions. More billionaire um, ads. Yeah, which are all More great ideas. And, and I think Rod got, you know, 
got a bit of heat for suggesting it. You know, it sounds like the you know the trickle down economy kind of policies of the eighties. Um, but you know, you do the math and, and it kind of stacks up. But it's kind of missing the point. The the it was, you know, it's not missing the point. But the biggest issue that's going to face New Zealanders is that potentially a million of us are going to be displaced. You know, um, through the whole economic implications of how this thing like we were only a day like 30 of this stuff right and it's going to keep rolling out we're not going to feel the economic uh full economic impact for for quite some time but it, uh, over that journey it's going to displace a whole bunch of people businesses are having to downsize industries are having to change the way they do things uh it's going to accelerate a lot of this digital transformation that we've all been talking about in our industries mm. um but we've, but we've all been to comfortable and lazy <laughs> to do like and uh you know there's a lot of things where we're not going to change the way we do things unless something forces us but now because of this crisis it's going to force a lot of industries and a lot of businesses to, to change the way they do things so mm-hmm. you know, yeah the other sphere that i obviously spent a lot of time in is as is, is being in retail so it's forcing a lot of retailers to go you know omni-channel and sell online um in uh, other industries like manufacturing moving more to automation um, in education, it's had a big impact because, like, all of our kids are now having to learn, uh, you know, remotely and digitally. Mm. Um, and this could this could be the new normal, right? Like, we're not out of the woods yet. We could bounce around between levels two, three, four. Um, and this, you know, COVID nineteen might just be the first variation of the the virus, and there could be a COVID twenty and a COVID twenty one. Like, you know, viruses. You know, the flu changes every year. You're never immune from the flu. So who knows? Like that sounds right. really scary that we could <laughs> spend the rest of our lives in my bunker. Um, but the point is it's going to force a lot of businesses to accelerate this digital change. And um, unfortunately, it's not great for people because digital transformation usually involves a lot of computers, a lot of automation, a lot of robots, less people. And so um, what we want to get people thinking about and focus on is like how can we use this as an opportunity to rapidly upskill our people um, and not like going to university or AUT or things of doing you know, year-long courses on you know, desktop publishing or you know whatever, which will be a skill that's redundant in another couple of years. But how do we get people learning practical skills that they can apply like within weeks? Like they could retrain to be uh, doing something different but using an upgraded skill set. Um, and you know that's kind of the other reason why we do an Institute of Awesome, um, because the other audience we we focus on is, is industry, and you know the more sort of grown up kids. We want it to be a place where people can bring ideas, and, and innovate, and test ideas, and just play, to, like create things, like yeah. and sort of problem, try to solve problems. It sounds like you're picking. If, if I was to force you to choose a sector to have an investment in, you, you're thinking education and training is where there's big opportunities for growth and change? Yeah, I think there's the, the list of opportunities for New Zealand is long, but for, it just makes sense if we focused on new ways to do education, then that lifts the tide for everyone because it becomes an asset. Like the better we get at, at delivering uh, uh, training and education and upskilling our people, the better we get at that, then the more, obviously the more people we can upskill. It just, it just, it just becomes a rising tide for everyone. I um, interviewed but, um, Melissa Clark Reynolds uh, a couple of weeks back, and she talked about the importance of investing in social capital as a, 
um, quite a, apart from infrastructure, or, you know, build, building bridges and, and motorways. It, it was investment in sort of soft assets around skills and knowledge and networks. This, this is kind of what you're talking about, a similar sort of discussion. Yeah, um, and the infrastructure projects will all go ahead, right? And, you know, it might be hopefully not lots of roads, but, you know, it might be dam projects. It might be Rod Stam's projects and it might be um, ultra, ultra-fast fibre. Um, it might be you know, 5G, it might be, who knows, like there's going to be, it might be rail, but um, it might be new ways to move people from A to B. Um, and so first of all, it should be, we shouldn't just assume it's going to be rail or, you know, kind of roads or the old way of doing things. Like we've got flying cars that are being prototyped and tested in New Zealand right now, which is awesome. Like I've been waiting for flying cars for like forever. Um, and so that's kind of exciting. And that's exciting, and it, it might be only a few years away before they're the, the commercially viable. But the, the but the, it's IP owned by Americans. Like we don't have any stake in this innovation. Um, and you know we used to have FBOS. We used to be like you know, leading the world in, in electronic transactions for payments. And now you know now actually FBOS is a is, is a is an albatross. Like it's holding us back. The rest of the world is, is accelerated in the fintech space. Um, so I think we need to kind of almost go back to the 80s and it's like, it's like let's pioneer some cool new stuff. Let's invest, like, like pick, make some big bets, like whether it's in you know, transportation infrastructure or power with Ron's ideas and projects or education or uh, fintech or, you know, whatever those big bets are um, in healthcare, you know, there's, there's, there's stuff that, that we all benefit from. Like we'll, right. we could have this amazing infrastructure and these amazing assets but if we don't get the education piece right and we don't get the engagement with our communities on these things, if we just go build dams and, and like the communities where the dams are built have, have kind of no engagement or no ownership or, you know, don't, you know, have no stake or say in the matter, then that's not going to be a great outcome. But these massive projects are awesome because they're real world projects for people to learn new skills and put them to work straight away. Like the whole shovel ready thing is like, how can, how can we get people through quick vocational training? That they can then start, you know, how can we work with local EWI and, and for them to have ownership over the implementation of 5G in their region, in their area, you know, and they're going to learn some new skills. They're going to learn how to do uh, you know, advanced Wi-Fi networks and, and telecommunication skills and all sorts of things. And they're going to have a stake. They're going to have some ownership over it. They're going to have a say in it. Um, and they're going to make sure that the implementation works for their community and helps solve their problems. And maybe they will innovate on the top. So instead of it just being a 5G rollout, you know, maybe there's an idea along the way, which is like, well, what if we did, did it slightly a bit differently and it would enable us to do these new things, light up some IoT networks out in the in dense, dense forests or, you know, whatever it is that the problem that we want to try and solve. Um, it, it just feels like it's win, win, win. It's like we can uh, create new opportunities and new skills for folk using you know, modern skills, digital skills, um, and link, linking back to like the idea with Institute of Awesome, the, the, the other audience we want to loop in is, is, is the kids, right? Because we want to have kids see what the new opportunities are, what the new roles, what the new jobs are going to be and aspire to be like those people. And if they have people in their community who are kind of, you know, being the wireless engineers and the rocket scientists and the you know environmental scientists then they're more likely to believe that they can be able to be those things too i feel like this is 
has been tried before. You, what would have to change for this to become up, you know, get greater uptake or get implementation? How how do we break the current system to get short courses, more practical courses, more um, adoption of I don't know, not necessarily tech. I don't think you're just talking tech, but we have had this predominance of three-year degree programs um, signing up to a big, you know, physical university to to get your education. What what has to change then for that model to be broken? I think it's a, just a timing thing. Like with all great innovations, like with Vent, it was just pure timing. Had a great idea. If we had the idea five, it was pure timing. It was like just uh, you know, I'm going to steer away from the word luck because like you know, we we made the timing work for us. Yeah. If we'd come up with the idea five years earlier, it wouldn't have worked because technology wouldn't have been able to do what we did. If mm-hmm. we came up with the idea five years later, we would have been too late. Um, there's been lots of conversation around, you know, do we do we need to have degrees? You know, what are what are things that employees value? Um, uh, you know, it feels like that conversation's matured a lot, and employers are now like, well, don't care about your degree. Like, I just care that you've got practical skills that that are relevant to our business. Um, and so I don't think a lot needs to change. And you're right, this is not a, an original idea. This idea has been around forever. You know, uh, vocational training centers that, you know, where you get industry to, to, to basically provide the mentorship and the training for the next work, you know, the next generation of workers who are going to come into that industry. So, um, but the thing that's, uh, that hasn't been before is a crisis. Like there's never been, uh, potentially never been uh, an environment where we've had so many people displaced. Like we have to solve this problem. Like, you know, innovation usually happens as a result of a need. Like we need to solve this problem. We can't have, uh, you know, record unemployment numbers. We can't have people displaced and, and putting pressure on the systems. Like we need to change the systems and we need to change them quickly. And, you know, I don't for a second profess to say that we have all the answers as to like, you know, it's going to be this vocational training center and it's going to be, it's going to be funded. Da, 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 da. So I don't know, but I back us to figure that out. I think we just need to make the decision and make the call that we want to try some new things. And okay. we'll, we'll learn as we go. We'll make some mistakes, um, but doing something's better than nothing. The, um, I want to just touch on retail and then I, I will we'll move on to, um, to voluntarily and some of your other projects. But retail is interesting that the digital uptake of retail, sorry, the, the I suppose the penetration of digital e-commerce into retail has been surprisingly slow. I mean, it's still in some sectors, I think down at about 7%, uh, grocery, for instance. Do you think that that is going to get a major change as a result of COVID? Yeah, um, but I don't think we're all going to be shopping online in their underwear as, as a normal uh, retail experience. Um, like as a technology company, we've been doing you know, uh, e-commerce and digital retail for 10 years. Um, I think I probably started then thinking, imagining a different future of retail. You know, maybe one that involved a lot of drones delivering sneakers and you know not having to leave the home and all that sort of thing because I'm a geek and, and you know that feels like kind of a cool place you know cool cool like problems it. to solve yeah, yeah I want to live in the jet I want to live in the Jetsons yeah absolutely that'd be that'd be cool um, and maybe it's an age thing but you know as I've spent ten years working with you know the world's best retailers around the world um, 
it's not a future anybody wants. Like nobody wants it. Like uh, retail has always been such an important part of our communities. Um, and nobody solves the problem of like, how do you fall in love with a product without actually being there and experiencing uh-huh. and touching it? Like it's absolutely a huge, huge component of retail, which is kind of like the chore of retail, like, you know, uh, groceries and, um, you know, buying new batteries and, you know, maybe buying an Xbox, you know, it's like, even though it's fun, it's like, you don't need to shop around to buy an Xbox and bat- batteries are batteries and groceries. You can do that online. Um, you know, that's the kind of the chore part of retail that, um, the convenience stores have solved. Now Amazon and others are, are solving, like I'm um, taking the, taking away that pain, but the part of retail that is never in this you know, famous last words, but you know, I really, really believe this is that they will never be displaced as what, what, what we call the cherished part of retail where you are, you're, you're as much just on a journey of discovery as, as you know anything else. Like you just want to go browse. Maybe you went into a store thinking you were buying one thing, and you find this other thing. You find this jacket or a handbag or a gift for somebody that you were totally unexpected. You didn't know that was what you were looking for. And that's very an experience that's really hard to replicate online. Um, and it's like it's part of human nature. Like whether it's the hunter gatherer thing or just wanting to be connected to our communities and you know, being able to go out into the town square and, and see people and, you know, get a coffee and lunch. You know, retail is this complex industry and this is not the first crisis that retailers face. So there's always been these things, whether it's Amazon or the dot-com era or, you know, malls or, um, you know, there's, there's always been, or mail order catalogs were the other big thing, you know, back in the day that, we're gonna, that was going to completely change uh, retail. Mm. Nope. None of it's made a dent. You know, collectively, all of these new ways of shopping um, have never amounted for more than 20% of commerce. Um, so there's something fundamental about us and our DNA that we love to go to the shops. Um, I can't remember what the question was, but... Uh... <laughs> Very much better. The, the, uh, the amazingly low penetration that e-commerce has made into retail, it has continued to stun me because, I, you know, I, I hate shopping and um, so you know survey of one i would i would shop online every day if i could but you know turns out i'm not the market and yeah, um and, and, so and, and so, me, oh sorry you go yeah so um like you know that made me sound like i'm bagging kind of e-commerce and digital it's like no absolutely it's like that's and mm. um, what retailers have figured out is that it's it's not a matter of e-com versus books and water retail it's it's like using all of those channels to to sell to your customer where the customer wants to buy um so you prefer to shop online and you know, a large proportion of folk do um and you know most people like to shop in store um but there's also these blended experiences where you know you can kind of discover products online and then you know then you go in store and check it out maybe you buy in store maybe you go back home and you, and you actually order online like the buying journey is actually complicated and it's not fully digital and it's not fully analog it, it's quite often those lines are getting getting blurred and so what retailers have to do is have to be there like when when that customer decides that they're falling in love with that product and they want to buy it you need to be there and that is either on social or uh, you know through your e-commerce site or or physically with a store and being ready to catch that customer when they want to buy that product. Yeah. Um, and digital is a great tool to, to enable all that. Tell us about voluntarily. It's a, I've seen bits of it around, but it's a, a scheme for joining up volunteers into some sort of network. What is it and, and why are you doing it? Yeah, so that's one of the other initiatives that our charitable trust has been working on for the last year or so. 
Um, and that came out of what we saw was this huge opportunity being part of the tech sector for all my life. You know, this, and I don't think it's unique to the tech sector, but you know, there's always been this goodwill and this you know, desire to pay it forward uh, and give back to your communities and things like that. Um, and a lot of tech companies will have um, CSR programs, corporate social responsibility, where you have a volunteer or two volunteer days, uh, you know, a year that you can use. Um, but um, what was missing was um, uh, the opportunities for, for folk, skilled folks, to be able to use those volunteer days for something that, you know, with a purpose that they connected with. That you know, not not knocking like you know, planting trees and cleaning beaches and things like that. Really. Um, but a lot of people wanted to be able to use their skilled volunteer days to something that they felt like they were making a bigger impact. Um, and, you know, we did the math and with all of the CSR days or the, all the volunteering days that are available to people in New Zealand alone, um, we could connect three people with every school in New Zealand to help a school out. And, uh, and so the, the other thing that, thing that's been happening this year and uh, you know, this was even before COVID was the introduction of the new digital curriculum in schools so teachers are now having to be able to teach programming and and uh and other digital subjects um and now with the whole COVID thing kids are schools are having to go fully digital they're having to be able to do remote learning um and so this is a huge steep learning curve for schools and so that's where voluntarily came from um you know we, we didn't know COVID was going to happen but we're, we're grateful that we started this work a year ago is it's a platform that connects skilled volunteers essentially with uh, communities and the first community we're focusing on is, is schools so if you um you've got some uh, it skills maybe you've got some programming skills science whatever your skills are there's probably a school somewhere that needs your help and uh -huh. it could be in the classroom it could be teaching that subject like just having imagine having somebody who worked from industry talk to the kids about you know how you would What's the relevance of this part of you know algebra or science or you know whatever it is that they're doing to connect it to a real person in a real industry um but it also might be just to get the wi-fi working in the school <laughs> it might be how do you run a zoom call like how do you actually get <laughs> how do you get it to work um how do you do distance learning how do you use uh, you know google uh, google drive or google docs or the google suite or microsoft or apple you know the list goes on and on and on yeah and this yeah. is stuff that that we use these tools every day in our, in our work, but schools are completely foreign to, to a lot of schools. They just, and most teachers don't even know where to start. And so that's voluntarily. It's kind of like, um, it's not really, a, it kind of is a marketplace. It's more of an infrastructure. Like we built the platform to streamline the whole uh, workflow automation of how you would get a volunteer to be ready to volunteer. That's all the things like digital ID verification to make sure that they, who they are who they say they are. It's all the safety stuff, all the police vetting if they're going into a school, kind of all that boring stuff, <clears throat> which is actually huge overhead. Mm. And then kind of like the, the process of like reminding the volunteer that they've committed, you know, they've, they've committed to this thing and letting them know what to expect. So that, you know, takes, you know, that makes it less scary. In some ways, it's a, it is exactly what um, COVID uh, has invented is this need for connection, right? And you talk about a, a million displaced people in New Zealand, I, I, I um, suspect that a good chunk of those still want to be connected and involved, maybe not necessarily in a paid capacity. Is that what you're thinking around the opportunity? Well, you know, kind of this is where all the streams come together. So there's uh, people who are displaced, and so they might want to give back to their community whilst they figure out what they're doing and, and find their new opportunity. On the other side of that equation, 
there might be other people in their community who could help them, like teach them new skills or you know find them new opportunities. Um, and then there's these projects, right? There's communities that have need, so volunteers of both types can help those communities. And then if we do this like big play around education and vocational training and all of these big infrastructure projects, it's a great way for industry to participate in those things too. Like they could use their volunteer days to do vocational training, to, to teach, to help retrain somebody. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be IT, doesn't have to be programming, doesn't have to be that skill set. It could be how to drive a forklift. It could be, you know, it could be anything. It could be any set of skills that most people take for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. But, you know, mm-hmm. it might be somebody else who's looking to... I actually do know how to drive a forklift. I'll have you know. <clears throat> I don't. Yeah, there you go. One of the things I have learned about you over the years is you do one interesting thing a year. You put yourself into one scary place every year. And tell us about what are some of the things you've done. I think you um, you you forced people to listen to you sing, for instance. <laughs> you mean I tortured them? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've done I've done all sorts of crazy things. You know, um, for like thirteen years now. Um, so. Uh, I cycled into New Zealand on a bike once, um, ran a thousand kilometers, uh, set myself a goal to get a, a paid singing gig in front of a hundred people, um, started a charity, um, a couple of years ago, I cycled around the, the world in 80 days. Um, uh, what else have I done? Did you actually I do it in 80 days? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I, I took a slightly shortcut route. Um, I picked a straight line around the southern hemisphere that went from, you know, went across South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Chile, and Argentina, um, and still around the world. Uh, and going cycling every day, 100 kilometers a day, it took 80 days to do it. That's amazing. Um, and yeah, and um, I do these things to prove a point. Um, and I can't even remember where it we all started. Like I was talking about doing something, and you know, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, you can't do that." It's impossible. And, and, like, there's a lot of things that we think are impossible. Like, if I suggested to you that I could cycle a bike around the world in 80 days, you'd be like, don't be stupid. That's impossible. Like, um, Even though I know but, it's possible, I still think it's stupid. <laughs> exactly. Um, but we put up all these bullshit barriers all the time that stop us from doing things. Like, Venn was another one. It was like, you know, I founded Venn 10 years ago, and it was, it was, you know, in the crunchy part of the GFC. And there were all these people around saying, oh, my God, you know, the world's ending, like businesses, you know, New Zealand's going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. There was all this prophecy about how the world was going to end. And I was like, this sounds like a great time to start something new. Like, how could you fuck it up even worse than what's happening out there at the moment? <laughs> and, like, we're kind of back We're kind of back there. Like, we're, yeah. you know, we're at the bottom of the, the at the bottom of the dip. Like, things probably aren't going to get much worse. Like, maybe they will. They will if we let them. But if we actually do some stuff, then the only way is up. Do you have a scary thing this year that you've committed to? It's kind of the charity. It's kind of getting the Institute of Awesome up and running. Like mm. I, I, I unofficially semi-retired semi from doing the, the annual impossible thing. And so decided that would go all in on a 10-year, a you know, big 10-year goal. And that's really the work that we're doing in the charitable process. Yeah. Great, 10-year scary thing. Yeah. Your the, the charitable trust is named after your mother, Pam Ferguson. What mm. was it about her that inspired you to name the charitable activity after her? Um because she's my mum. So why wouldn't you name something after your mum? <laughs> <laughs> uh 
so my mum was, you know, for a lot of people, a very inspirational person in my life. Um, and she was the, uh, you know, she was probably the inspiration for me doing the annual impossible challenges because she, she was a solo mum raising three boys, um, and, um, unemployed and, and was a paraplegic and growing up, like, it's not that I was oblivious to those, those facts, but it never had, it never felt like it had an impact on me and my brothers, like growing up. We always felt like we had all the opportunities available to us. Um, and that's because mum made sure that there was always opportunities. And, and you know, one of the one of the most significant things that she did when, when I was about 10 was she came home and she brought home a, a personal computer. And this was in the 80s. We weren't even using computers and, and it worked. Like banks maybe had some computers, but everybody else was still trying to figure out what the hell, you know, what would you right. use a computer for? And they were super expensive as well. So she had to take out like a, a second mortgage on the home to, to buy one of these things. Everybody <laughs> thought she was crazy. It's like, what are you doing? That's just a toy. It's a really expensive toy. Why are you buying it? But she, she had this hunch that you know computers could change the world, and, and so as a result, or a Sinclair, it was it was a Sega SD three thousand. So it wasn't even a very popular computer, <laughs> um, but it was the start. And then we had a Commodore sixty four, and then we had PCs, and like Mum just consistently made this investment. Um, mm. And God, I hate to think about how much money she spent on computers. Um, in, in today's dollar terms, but um, but it meant that me and my two brothers, we all grew up having careers in, 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 in technology, um, and it led me to found Bend, and the year I founded Bend, my mum passed away, and so I always felt like she missed, like, kind of seeing uh, the, the the full benefit of, of that gesture that she made, um, and and so a few years after that is when we decided that would set up a charitable foundation with her name and to try and recreate that same gesture but for every every kid in New Zealand like you know it's not a computer but what's the next thing what's the next big leap um, around science and technology that may seem like a toy now but for our kids it's going to be the it's going to be the big transformative thing in their future and we don't know what those things are our philosophy is like well let's just get kids connected with all forms of technology um, and let them become the dreamers and the innovators and then maybe in 10 years time they'll figure out how to uh, you know how to change the world using the next wave of technology so we so we go do all sorts of crazy things like opening school camps and creating volunteer platforms to get volunteers into classrooms helping kids and it, 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 it it's all connected back to that it's like how do we create the step change for new zealand um and you know the, it's that saying right so when's the best time to climb a tree and the answer is 30 years ago maybe an investment that we don't really see the benefit of for 10, 20, 30 years, but we've got to start somewhere. And starting with mm. kids is the best place. They just, they just naturally keep growing. <laughs> <laughs> and if you think about your mum and the legacy, I suppose, you know, that if, if, if the Pam Ferguson Trust could have done something that would honour her name, what, what do you think it would be? Can you imagine what that 10-year horizon will bring? In the next 10 years? Mm. Um, I like to think it's just, you know, creating more equality for kids in New Zealand. Like um, you and I probably, and, and many others, we live in these little bubbles and, and we're oblivious to the, the challenges that are out there in our communities. Um, like, you know, most kids don't actually have access to the internet and digital tools. Like their family might have a smartphone and, um, and now like they're at home and they're having to learn. It's like, how do they do that when they don't have a computer and an internet connection? 
like that's not going to work. It's just going to propagate you know, more poverty for for these folk. So um, yeah, like when we started the charity, there was there was probably some easy things we could have picked to do. Like you know, one of the things that we started doing was um, the OMG tech workshops where you know we got lots of crazy technology and lots of kids. And just over a weekend, they got to learn how to program robots and fly drones and, and, and do all that sort of stuff. And it was a real, it, the events were a real success and, and inspired lots of kids. And they all believed that they could be rocket scientists and, and, and programmers and all those great things. But we realized there was kids missing. Like, they were, you know, for, for inner city urban kids, it was great. But they probably didn't need those events because their parents or their uncle or somebody who lives down the street probably works as a scientist or, you know, works in technology. Um, yeah, but it was the kids in South Auckland and the kids in the you know out of the cities who would never have access to those things, never would believe that they could become a rocket scientist or invent something or become a designer. Like these are all foreign things that they just don't aspire to to become. Um, and so, yeah, and so we we pivoted the charity and we decided that we would pick the incredibly unsexy things and the really really hard things. Um, and we do a lot of work that we can't even talk about. Well, it's not that we can't talk about. It's like we just don't want to talk about. It. Like, you know, we, we, we work with a lot of communities who get a lot of benefit, but it's it's not for us to brag about. It's their stories. Like, if they want to tell the story about how um, you know, they they created for themselves these opportunities, we don't create the opportunities for them. We just kind of bring them the tools and show them how to use them and, you know, uh, and, and give them the latitude to try things and create opportunities for their kids. They do the hard work. Like, we feel like we, we are super important, but we're not. We're not important. Um, it's their willingness to want to change something and and, and, and be a little bit different and, and try something new. That's that's the real bravery. Um, we just said yes, you turn up in a van with lots of stuff in it. Well, that's a great way to end. Uh, Vaughan, thanks for your time and uh, all the best with the Institute of Awesome. If people want to engage with voluntarily or the Institute, how do they do that? Uh, well, so the Institute... Um, so if you go to actually the, just go to um, um, pamferguson.org.nz, uh, that's the, the website for the charity that talks about all of our initiatives that we do, um, or a good good number of them, and that has links off to all of those projects. So if anything in particular um, appeals to one of your listeners, one of your viewers, the next ten years of um, of scary. Thanks for your time. All the best. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to this climate business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.